Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Liverpool Echo. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Dan O'Donoghue, and on this week's episode, Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons chats to local democracy reporter Gareth Kavanagh about the political issues in Cumbria. But the the SIPFA report that was commissioned and, and came out the end of the last year basically told them, you know, that from the government we need to we need to know how you're going to get out of this situation or there might be a section 114 notice which is essentially the council equivalent of bankruptcy it's like telling a a council you can only spend on key services we're not going to let you accrue any new borrowing it's it's not great it's it's a tight spot for them to be in but first we'll be discussing the government's long-awaited plan to level up britain the white paper, published last week, promised to bring an end to regional inequality and bridge the North-South divide. But with little or no new money, many have questioned whether Boris Johnson is serious about the project. With me now to discuss is Wigan MP and Shadow Leveling Up Secretary Lisa Nandy. Lisa, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Maybe if we could just start with the Convention of the North, which was held in Liverpool this week. Michael Gove told the conference, and I quote, We can't go on with the gulf between rich and poor, north and south. It is not simply a matter of social justice, it is also a matter of economic efficiency. I think you would probably agree with the assessment, but is the government's plan going to do anything to resolve those issues? I definitely agree with most of his assessment. The big problem, as you highlighted earlier, is the Treasury. It's not just that the Treasury has blocked new money for levelling up. Um, And when I say new money, I mean returning the money that has been taken from large swathes of the country, particularly the north of England, in recent decades and returning it back to us to spend it as we see fit. It's also that they've blocked new powers as well. And my experience as the MP for Wigan over the last 12 years and as somebody who's taken a big interest in this agenda because it's so personal to me, it's about whether, you know, my friends, my family my neighbours can stay and contribute and get on, not just about winning votes. The fact that we're spending small pots of money, competitive pots of money, asking people to bid into them and then tasking people sitting in Whitehall with deciding what is worth spending our money on is a major, major problem. So it's not just the money, it's the power as well. And it's the fact that while Michael Gove is absolutely right, we've cottoned on to the fact that trickle-down economics doesn't work, Trickle-out economics doesn't work either. We've had 40 years of good jobs being stripped out of our towns and successive governments, including my own political party, who 
put investment into the cities in the hope that the benefits would be shared more widely. That's left a lot of places completely cut off from economic growth, opportunities, good jobs, and too many young people having to get out to get on. It affects towns like Wigan, even though they're very close to Greater Manchester, Manchester. but it also really, really affects towns in places like Rill, Southport, coastal towns and coastal communities, where they're not near a big city and where they just can't get a slice of the pie because all of the share of that investment is going into the major cities. So we've got to spread power, prosperity and opportunity more widely if this country is going to fulfil its potential. Gove talked a lot about more devolution to northern leaders, more state intervention, a less centralised government. Again, things I imagine Labour might support, but how do you differentiate your policy from from theirs, I suppose? What what are the key differences in, in how you would tackle some of these issues? Well, I suppose it's about who decides, really. We don't take the approach that the centre should determine what powers are handed out to where and who is fit to govern. We take a bottom-up approach. In the end, if you look at the challenges facing these, this country, and they are many, um, we've had good jobs stripped out of many communities in the country, but the infrastructure has gone too, because as young people have left and the working age population has fallen, the spending power has gone. So you can see the scars on our high streets, but you can also see it in the cancelled bus networks because the passenger numbers aren't there. You can see it in the loss of banks, which poses a major problem then for local businesses because they're having to go to head offices hundreds of miles away to try to convince them of the assets and potential in places that those people have never seen, never visited and don't understand. These are big, big problems. And the only way that you solve them is from the bottom up. So while Rishi Sunak is currently drawing circles on a map, drawing up what he calls viable economic areas, which I find deeply offensive, the idea that large swathes of the country are not viable economic areas, and thereby choosing who gets the power to control services in their own areas, we would take a very different approach that a partnership with local communities where they tell us what they need and we work with them to make sure that they have it. That's the approach that Mark Drakeford and Vaughan Gethings are taking in Wales at the moment through the Labour Welsh Government there. They've just signed off a big economic devolution package to one part of Wales, which um, which was on their request. And when I talk to leaders across the country, you know, it makes no sense to me that Andy Burnham has control, democratic control over bus services in Greater Manchester. So I'm very fortunate in that I'm a Wigan MP and me and my constituents We'll soon have bus services that connect us up to our job opportunities, to apprenticeships, to our family and our friends. But just over the border here in Chorley and West Lanks, why should people be denied those powers because and those opportunities? Because a Chancellor sitting in, in the Treasury building in Whitehall has decided that they're not, not good enough to govern themselves. It's just wrong. And that's why we would take a fundamentally different approach that starts with people and builds upwards. Are you a bit sceptical about some of this? I mean, there was a debate earlier this week with a lot of North East MPs discussing they wanted kind of investment in say, a new rail line up there. And the government had basically said, look, you know, if there's a, a new devolution deal that you can all the local authorities can agree up there, we may well consider putting this investment in. And they said, you know, this is kind of promise of jam tomorrow if you kind of tinker around today you know do you think some of these pledges are are a bit hollow really by you know asking places to reorganize themselves and then potentially you know at some undisclosed date there might be money down the road i don't see how this is 
in, uh, uh, handing back power to people if the centre still gets to determine how we're governed and what decisions we're allowed to make for ourselves. There was an article a few years ago by the environmentalist George Monbiot where he talked about a new road that was being built in Oxfordshire where I think he lives and he talked about how the consultation that was done was a sham, which anyone who lives in Greater Manchester will remember the so-called consultation over whether we had a, a mayor. Um, it was um, it lasted for two weeks. It had 12 responses because it was only advertised on the government's website. And 10 of those responses were from the same local authorities who just signed the deal. Um, the people were completely cut out of the conversation. And I'm a big supporter of Andy Burnham. I think he's been great for us. But we should have the right to decide whether we want those government governance arrangements or not. And in this article, George Monbiot says, by the time they get round to asking us what we think, all that will be left to decide is the colour of the road signs. And I think that's far too many people's experience. I was reminded of that listening to a lot of my North East colleagues um, begging the minister for um, some some kind of response and not really getting anything back there's an arrogance to this that sort of reminds me of the sort of feudal system this idea that you know we should go cap in hand to a group of masters who can determine what happens in our our own lives and our own communities and I think my frustration with Michael Gove is that although he is talking the right language he knows that he can't deliver it he's hit a real roadblock in the treasury he's not leveling with us about that if he'd produced a white paper a few weeks ago that acknowledged his own role in this, that we're still paying the price for some of the failures that he presided over as education secretary, you know, stripping local the local authority family of their ability to hold the collective education of our children together um, and our ability to drive improvements in education in our own local areas and pulling all that power back to the centre so that if you wanted to appeal against a decision as the parent of a child with special educational needs to exclude your child from school you had to go directly to the Secretary of State you couldn't even go to your own local council anymore I wish he would acknowledge that I wish that he would acknowledge that they got that wrong and I wish that he would be honest about the fact that he is coming across these problems in government you know, you look at, at previous leaders who've done this, John Prescott, Michael Heseltine, they were always pretty open about the problems that they were encountering and quite realistic about the pace at which they could move. All we're getting from this government is these sort of, you know, these big promises, this King's Cross style regeneration projects on a shoestring, renaissance of the North with no money, no powers, no buy-in from the Treasury. We can see through it. And I, I would just say to him, if he listens to the Northern Agenda, uh, as I said to him in the House of Commons yesterday, just level with us. Leveling up has to mean being honest and coming clean about the failures. And I've been honest about where I think my party's got it wrong in the past. And I'll be honest when I think we're getting it wrong in the future, but we need the same from the Secretary of State. We need a champion for the North. You mentioned that Gove is potentially being held back by Rishi Sunak. I mean, the Chancellor is obviously a Northern MP. He spoke when he was a backbencher about some of the issues, particularly around Northern Bauhaus Rail and how it was needed. What do you think has gone wrong there? Do you think maybe he's too focused on his next job, potentially, rather than, you know, sticking up for for the North? I mean, what's the issue there, do you think? As someone who sees it very much from the inside, as well as from a slightly detached perspective, as somebody who was born, brought up and lives in the North and is bringing my family up here, I, I think the central problem is that fundamentally Rishi Sunak does not believe that most regions of the UK have the ability to contribute to our economic future. 
I think he believes firmly that London in the southeast is the economic powerhouse, will remain the economic powerhouse of this country, and therefore anything that is given to other regions, handouts from the centre, is given only in terms of, of um, you know, ameliorating some of the problems and helping to sustain the Tory majority in Parliament. And, you know, I don't say that lightly, but I think that is absolutely crystal clear, running through not only the ruins of the white paper that we had last week, but also through some of the comments that have surfaced in the media recently. You know, there was a there's a, a piece by one of his advisors uh, um, that has surfaced from a few years ago where he talks about you can't possibly move any of these companies to Burnley or Blackburn or, you know, parts of the Liverpool, parts of the north. I think what they fundamentally don't understand is that within living memory, places like Barnsley, Wigan, we powered this country. We built our wealth and influence and we were at the centre of the world. And we could be again with a government that had the same level of ambition for this country and for us as we do for ourselves. I saw it in Grimsby for myself. Michael Gove's seen it as well. Young apprentices powering the world through wind wind energy um, from the Grimsby docks. But I'll tell you where that started. It started with regional development agencies because they were based in their communities, because they could see the potential, not just the problems. They were able to lever in money and build build on that those assets and that potential. That's not the approach this government is taking. And that's why ultimately, while I think they will fail, um, I think this will create the momentum for us to step up um, and show right across the north of England that we can do this for ourselves. You mentioned there how parts of the North have kind of led the way in the past and, you know, one place which, you know, used to lead the way was Liverpool. And there was a debate this week where Neil O'Brien, obviously Michael Gove's kind of deputy in the levelling up department, spoke about how government investment had given Liverpool a new a new lease of life. And he got an absolute paste in from a lot of the region's MPs uh, for saying that. I mean, I know that you've touched on this in the past in, in debates, but do you think it's kind of tone deaf sometimes, the government saying things like this and you know, it almost wants to wipe out the last decade of what, what many of these cities have kind of had to go through. I think it's pretty clear to most of us who live in the north of England that a lot of the problems that the government is now currently dealing with, that Michael Gove has been brought in to fix, have been turbocharged over the last decade in our communities. This didn't start with this government. It actually started 40 years ago when I was growing up in Manchester. Um, I was born in Manchester the year that Thatcher came to power. And Manchester then was much, um, like Liverpool, was much uh, older demographically than the surrounding towns. People were um, worked in the factories, the mines, the mills, they worked on the docks. Um, and so young people would move there for work. Those jobs have been stripped away from our communities over a very long period of time. And when the Labour government came in to try and fix it, they did two things. They they invested in the public sector in those towns to create lots of public sector jobs to help stimulate the local economy. And they invested massively in the cities in the hope that the benefits would be shared more widely. What then happened was that a Tory government came in and really started to turbocharge the decline because the jobs had gone, the spending power had gone, and you could see it on our high streets. Once they hit us with harsh, deep, front-loaded cuts that we were barely able to withstand, far bigger cuts than other areas of the country. My own council, Wigan, had the third deepest cuts of any local authority in the country at that time. What it meant was people just didn't have money. They didn't have jobs. They weren't spending in local shops and businesses. And so we entered this spiral 
that has led us here to a Secretary of State who is absolutely at the centre of that, Michael Gove, who is now telling us that he's got 12 missions um, by which he'll succeed. These aren't 12 missions. These are 12 admissions of failure over the last decade. This is what they've created. And I think the lack of humility is pretty appalling, actually. Yes, um, when this week when Michael Gove came to the Convention of the North, he told Northern leaders that perhaps they hadn't got all of that right on austerity. But yet 24 hours later, he was standing in the House of Commons telling his backbenchers that austerity was absolutely the right thing to do. There is no humility there at all. No recognition that if you take money out of people's pockets, as they're doing at the moment with the tax hikes that are coming with the sky high inflation and the runaway energy bills, if you do that, you can't possibly hope to have a Medici style renaissance or whatever it is that he's been talking about. Now, I think if you look at the polls, it's quite clear that red wall voters are beginning to turn against Boris Johnson. But I just wonder, do you think that's more down to the chaos that the Tories are in or is that an endorsement of Labour? I mean, I just wonder, is it possible if the economy has bounced back in two years and the Tories have kind of targeted certain northern seats with cash, will your poll lead shrink, do you think? I mean, I'm under no illusions about the scale of the challenge that we face I stood to be leader of the Labour Party a few years ago. Don't talk about it very much anymore. But um, there was um, there was a moment in on that day, election day when I was watching our entire base collapse. Places that have been Labour for a hundred years, you know, where once we were them and they were us. I was watching that collapse in every nation and region of the UK, and I just vowed that never again would we be here watching that happen. Fundamentally, people didn't believe that. Um, they left Labour, we left them. And I said that night, I will, I've heard you, I've seen you, I've felt it, and I'll make it my mission to bring Labour home to you. So when Kira appointed me to this job, that's exactly what the instruction was. We are bringing Labour home to those places that once powered the world and could do again. We recognise and value the contribution that they've got that they've got to make, and we will come with a plan um, and earn back people's trust to deliver it. Now, that's no small task, given what's happened in recent years. Um, but I, I think it's the only the only future for towns like mine. I, I've looked at what's unfolded in the government over the last few weeks, you know, the, the chaos that the Prime Minister's in, the breach of trust with the British people. I've looked at what Michael Gove has been able to produce, which amounts to very little, um, more than a sort of doorstep stop for, um, you know, your, your porch. Um, it's a massive document, but most of it seems to be about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And most of all, I've looked at a chancellor, Rishi Sunak, who's billed as the great hope for the Tory party post Boris Johnson. He's a Yorkshire MP. He's seeing this in his own constituency. People young people having to get out to get on and the collapse of the the, the high street and the, the local services that make the social fabric of the community. And yet he is the block on all of this. Yorkshire is the most affected region by these trends in the whole of England. Um, the ageing populations that we're seeing in our towns and the warning lights flashing on the dashboard, the high street being to the local economy what an A&E is to the health service. You know, it's a sign that something is badly broken in the local economy. And yet he is the person that has uh, destroyed this agenda, the potential for change in those communities. So I, I just say to people, I know we're not there yet, and I know that we haven't won your trust back yet, but I think people are starting to look again at Labour, and I hope, I'm determined, that when they look, they're going to like what they see. 
And finally, we saw uh, Newcastle City Council's long-standing leader, Nick Forbes, who leads the Labour group of the Local Government Association, lose a selection battle this week. Do you think the Labour family will be poorer without Nick? And would you like to see him continue in his roles, if that's at all possible? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely would, because my experience of working with Nick Forbes is that he's a tremendous champion for the North East, um, for Newcastle in particular, but for the North East. And I, I spent three of the happiest years of my life in Newcastle when I went to university there. I have such affection for the city. Every time I go over the bridge on the train, I get a sort of, you know, leaping feeling, um, just a sort of bit of a thrill to be back there. And Nick has been Newcastle's biggest champion you know he's made he's made national waves with that he's defended the people of the city in really tough times took a couple of things spring to mind that he did um the newcastle living wage was absolutely central to this idea of living up leveling up because he said if the government won't do it we will do it and we've got to do it because if you put money back into working people's pockets, they go out and spend it in the local community. So while the Tories were giving tax breaks to people who had offshore savings accounts, you know, people who earn over a million a year, he was putting money into people's pockets to help stimulate the local economy. But he also backed his young people. And that's one of the things that is so important about levelling up. When the government axed the education maintenance allowance at one stroke in a meeting in Whitehall, Without any reference to Parliament or to the country or to those young people, they took away the chances for really, really gifted young people to go on to university because that was the problem in lots of towns around the country like Wigan. They got great GCSEs, but they just couldn't afford to stay on at college through to 18 in order to get to university. And Nick said, well, if they're taking it away, we're going to defend it. Backing the young people of that city has been really important. So I hope... I hope that we find a way through this. I hope that the the members in Newcastle decide that they want Nick to continue. Whatever happens, I know that I'll be able to draw on him as a source of advice and support and I'll continue to do so. Because if we're going to get this agenda right, we're not going to do it from meeting rooms in Westminster, just like the government's not going to do it from meeting rooms in Whitehall. I'm going to be out around the country listening to people like Nick and making sure that we get it right for people in their own areas. So it's the part of the Northern Agenda podcast where we go around the north to check in on the biggest political issues in our towns, cities and villages. The weather's a bit bracing, but today, why don't we put on our walking boots and head into rural Cumbria, home to the Lake District and a population of half a million people, including the towns of Carlisle and Barrow. It's also at the sharp end of some fascinating political controversies. To find out more, let's chat to Gareth Kavanagh, the local democracy reporter for Cumbria. Gareth, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having us on. No problem at all. So you've got us five political talking points for Cumbria. And the first is one that I've been reading quite a lot about, which is this local government reorganisation, which is causing quite a lot of controversy locally. Can you just take me through the, the background of that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it is very uh, contentious. Basically, in 2020, the UK government started asking the leaders of the councils what their ideal model would be for local government in Cumbria. So basically they announced plans to to reorganise how the county is run and the winning bid was for an east-west split. So basically they're going to abolish Cumbria as a a local authority area. There'll be no more Cumbria County Council and they're going to split the county in two. So there'll be two new local authority areas, Cumberland in uh, the west, which will have the footprint of Carlisle, Allerdale, 
and Corkland, and then there'll be Westmoreland and Furness in the east, which will be Eden, Barrow in Furness, and South Lakeland. So essentially, they're going to abolish Cumbria County Council, Carlisle City Council, Allerdale and Corkland Borough Councils, as well as Eden, South Lakeland and Barrow Borough Council. And there'll be two new councils, two new unitary councils. So you'll have Cumberland Council in the West and Westmoreland and Furness Council in the East. It is very contentious. Basically, the Labour leader of Cumbria County Council, who's one kind of one half of the ruling coalition there, he thinks that the decision is politically motivated and that it's been done in, in such a way to benefit the Conservative government's political aims, which naturally the Conservatives do not support. Essentially, the Labour leader's legal challenge against this move um, is opposed by the, the Conservative councillors who think that it would be a waste of council taxpayers' money um, and the council's time. That's interesting. I know there's a similar process that's been going on in North Yorkshire as well, which has proved also quite contentious and and controversial. So we'll be keeping an eye on that one for sure. Another one which might have caught people's attention is the the coal mine, which has been a subject of a public inquiry. And we we, we might be getting a final decision on that in the coming weeks. Is that right? On the coal mine rests with, well, the the same man who is involved with this local government shakeup, Michael Gove, the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. We believe he's going to make his final decision on that in, well, this month, February, because it was the subject of a a public inquiry. It was called in after Cumbria County Council struggled to come to a decision on the coal mine in their usual development processes. It's, It's very contentious, mainly because the opposition groups to this mine think in 2022 we shouldn't be opening new coal mines in the in the march towards net zero and reducing carbon emissions what's interesting about this though is that the supporters of the mine say that it's actually better for the environment to extract coal on british shores rather than shipping it over from abroad you're actually in effect reducing emissions because you're doing it here for british steel rather than getting coal from abroad and, and shipping it across. It's also been pointed out to me by Mike Starkey, the Mayor of Copeland, who is an ardent support of this mine, that actually people are getting the wrong end of the stick. And this is metallurgical coal, which is used for steel. It's not thermal coal, which will be used for power. Thermal coal is what the Prime Minister is talking about when he says about power and past coal and and phasing out coal. And also an interesting point as well (laughs) is that these clean energy resources they're talking about, nuclear reactors, you know, clean energy production, wind farms, they all need steel. And at the end of the day, always going to need steel. You need metallurgical coal for steel. It's kind of a, a conflict between the environment and jobs. Yeah, that seems to be a conflict at the heart of quite a lot of big issues at the moment. Speaking of energy and industry, Copeland, one of the districts or boroughs in Cumbria, is eagerly uh, awaiting news about whether they might be able to host a a nuclear fusion reactor. What's going on with that? We have this unused site neighbour in Sellafield called Mooaside. I believe it was probably involved in the Sellafield processes at some point, but it's it's now kind of empty real estate and they, they want to do something with that. As well as these small modular reactors, with Copeland also has a bid in for a, a fusion reactor, but it's a prototype. So essentially 
there's still about 30 more years needed to see if fusion is if we can kind of unlock the potential of fusion the uk atomic energy authority are looking for a site a suitable site for their prototype fusion reactor and essentially Moorside in Copeland is in the final five. The UK Atomic Energy Authority judges visited Copeland last week and uh, sort of saw everything that he had to offer and listened to the, the views of uh, local leaders and business leaders who no doubt will have told them that Copeland is probably one of the most nuclear savvy areas in, in the UK. You know, I know it's a, it's a, it's a very different type of, uh, of nuclear, but We've got Sellafield being decommissioned on our, on our doorsteps. So, you know, people are really aware of the jobs that are there in, in the nuclear industry. And, and, and that's another thing that people kind of want to deliver on for, for, the, for the jobs and the economic potential there. Yeah. And speaking of economic potential, I, and as I alluded to earlier, I think most people think about Cumbria as being a largely rural county. But obviously it does have towns like Carlisle, which appears to have big plans for the next 30 years about how it's going to grow its economy take take me through what's going on with that um as part of the borderlands growth deal there's 20 million split off for the train station basically they want carlisle train station to become a sort of a key gateway point to the lakes for you know scotland and, and they want it to be kind of a key sort of point of infrastructure for the uk as you know as all sorts of economic benefits there's some very nice, pretty concept art that's been drawn up for how it could potentially look, you know, once these 20 million's uh, gone in. It's more than that, though. It's it's potentially huge for the area. And a stone's throw from there, you've got the citadels, which are a, a grade one listed, you know, asset to the city. It's all part of the city's sort of Roman history. You know, you'll know that, that there's Carlisle Castle and all sort of the, the history that goes along with that. Basically... There's another 50 million split off to redevelop those citadel buildings into a University of Cumbria campus. Those sort of historic historic buildings that are kind of cool to look at as a piece of history, they'll be used to create a state-of-the-art new, you know, new campus inside them um, for, for university students. And sort of taking advantage of that, adapting to the change in shopping trends brought about by covid the city council's got all sorts of plans for this for the city center as well some of that was released in uh, this year's budget but basically they want to repurpose certain parts of the high street because obviously with covid it's been a huge loss of footfall to the city center you know changing shopping trends and that kind of thing there's plans for for sort of a bit of residential and a, a bit of hospitality and a little bit of shopping in the city center to kind of offer something different and and they're also going to make the the city centre a little bit more friendly to events bringing new light in and that kind of thing so that you could have like an ice rink or you know an outdoor cinema in the summer months sort of adapting to to changing trends because that's the kind of thing that people kind of want a little bit more of in the city centre now that it's the less interested in in shopping and brick and mortar shops yeah that is certainly a long running trend now your final topic is the plight of uh, Copeland Borough Council. We hear quite a lot on this podcast about local uh, town halls around the north who are in financial difficulties, but I think there can't be many that are struggling as much as Copeland, which is at serious risk of the local council equivalent of, of bankruptcy, isn't it? How, how did it get to where it is at the moment? Copeland's had progressively less uh, support from from government over the years, and it's kind of reduced to zero by this point. They also lost uh, a hefty 
business rates appeal from Sellafield, who I just mentioned, the decommissioning site, they realised that they were being charged a bit too much for, for the business rates and uh, and they won that appeal. And that was, you know, that was a big hit for, for Copeland Council. That was that happened under the, the previous Labour administration. And then you also have five million in borrowing that kind of they've now had to ask for for one point four million of back. <laughs> so they can use that to sort of get out of this tight spot basically while they're balancing the budget. But the the SIPFA report that was commissioned and, and came out at the end of the last year basically told them, you know, that from the government, we need to we need to know how you're going to get out of this situation or there might be a Section 114 notice, which is essentially the council equivalent of bankruptcy. It's like telling a, a council you can only spend on key services. We're not going to let you accrue any new borrowing. It's it's not great. It's it's a tight spot for them to be in. But in fairness, the the mayor of Copeland, Mike Starkey, is uh, managed to release a balanced budget for for a number of years consecutively. So I'm told that they're going to do that again this time. That budget, the final budget of Copeland Borough Council before it's uh, abolished and replaced by Cumberland Council, that is going before council tomorrow. So, plenty happening in Cumbria, for good or, or not perhaps perhaps not quite so good, across the county. Gareth Cavanagh, Cumbria Local Democracy Reporter, thank you so much for, for talking to us today. No problem, thanks for having us on. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Spotify.